This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We hope this will be the greatest hour of radio ever. Of course, we seek that every week and fail, but you never know. Which I guess does remind us of a bonus quip for today's program from W.C. Fields, who once said, if at first you don't succeed, try again. And if you keep failing, well then quit. There's no use being a damn fool about it. Although we admire the sentiment, we're going to keep on trying. We've been talking in the past weeks about a number of guests we are seeking to bring you. We are still seeking to bring you them, and I think we'll do so. And one of those folks we mentioned was our good pal Sean Mitten, our sports expert and raconteur, who will in fact be joining us on today's program. We are sure that that will be as fun as always. Stay tuned for that. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date today being the 28th of February. And sadly, our last chance to say February with both ours. Well, at least until 2014 anyway. I do hope we're still here in 2014, and dear listener, you can help that happen by making sure you contribute generously to this radio station during our annual Pledge Drive next month. But back to February 28th. It was on this date in 1646 that the Massachusetts Puritans put Roger Scott on trial for falling asleep in church. And people wonder why these folks weren't popular in Europe. On February 28, 1749, British novelist Henry Fielding publishes his rollicking and monumental tale, The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. And I am somewhat ashamed to admit that although I've had the movie Tom Jones considered a cinema classic for years, I've never yet watched it. It was on February 28, 1932, that the Ford Motor Company produced its last Model A, ending a five-year production run that put five million Model As on American highways. I feel nostalgic for this item because I, in fact, learned to drive on a 1928 flatbed Model A, which my grandpa used to keep to drive around on the ranch with, back when you could have a ranch in the Bay Area. And on February 28, 1940, the American epic Gone with the Wind nearly sweeps the Oscars, winning awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Supporting Actress. And of course, in what would have to be considered typical Hollywood fashion during the entire night of Oscar sweeps, Nobody thought to mention the author of the book, Margaret Mitchell, which does give you some idea where writers stack up in the Hollywood hierarchy, which does remind me of the old joke about the Hollywood actress that was so dumb she was sleeping with the screenwriters. Our quote of the day comes from Abraham Lincoln, and no, not Daniel Day-Lewis portraying Abraham Lincoln, the real 16th president, who once said, most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. That's not really appropriate, Mr. McMillan. Was it? But it does allow me to insert the controversy that many people think that The Wizard of Oz should have won the Best Picture Award in 1939 over Gone with the Wind, including our own producer. I have to admit, I could probably be talking to that viewpoint, too. And in fact, uh, our own David Rosenblum claims that 1939 was the all-time greatest year ever, Doug. And, and David may be right. Besides Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, that year offered up Stagecoach, Wuthering Heights, 
Dark Victory, Love Affair, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Ninotchka, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Of Mice and Men. Which invites the question, why can't they make movies like that now? Our clip of the day comes from Jimmy Dean, who once said, You gotta try your luck at least once a day, because you could be going around lucky all day and not even know it. Which I admit, is not Shakespeare. But when I imagine those words in the accent of Jimmy Dean, I just have to laugh. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Our joke of the day was sent to us by Geraldo, which is, I was in L.A. recently and saw a bumper sticker on a parked car. It read, I miss Chicago. So... I broke a window, stole the radio, shot out the tires, opened up the trunk, and put in a dead body. Then I left a note that said, I hope this helps. Our stat of the day comes from Bloomberg.com, which notes that as assessed by international accounting rules, the four biggest U.S. banks, that would be J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, have combined assets totaling $14.7 trillion dollars which is equivalent to 93% of the U.S. gross domestic product last year. They don't call them big banks for nothing. And before we leave this section, let's go back and do a bonus quote slash quip of the day, which came from the bosses of Yum! Exclamation point, better known to you as the owners of KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. In the wake of an expose on Chinese TV that the local suppliers to KFC had stuffed its chickens with excessive antibiotics, an official investigation was launched. Which I guess in this respect puts the Chinese government ahead of our own. Apparently last month the uh, sales of KFC in China fell a staggering 41%. Which works our way back to the quote slash quip from Yum. Which is, our food is perfectly safe to eat which we here at Radio Parallax have to admit is something less than a ringing endorsement, but does prompt us to add that this program is perfectly safe to listen to. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for Second Amendment advocates at the expense of First Amendment advocates with the news that a Missouri lawmaker wants to make it a crime for any fellow representative to introduce gun control legislation. Yes, Republican State Representative Mike Lira's bill would make it a felony to propose any law that would, quote, further restrict the right of an individual to bear arms, unquote. Lyra concedes his bill won't pass, but says it's, quote, a matter of principle, unquote. To which we say, it was, on the other hand, a bad week for the Russian people. This is part one. With the news that ultra-nationalist politician Vladimir Zhirinovsky has proposed banning overeating and excessive sex which he blames for Russia's low life expectancy. 
said Zhirinovsky. In Europe, America, or Japan, they live longer. Why should we perish? To which I would add, at least he's not proposing that they make it a felony for Russian legislators to propose a restriction on excessive sex, which makes him, I guess, just a little bit saner than some Missouri state representatives. And it was a bad week for the Russian people, part two, with the news that in the wake of the largest meteor in almost a century smashing into the sky over Siberia, Russian ultra-nationalist politician Vladimir Zhirinovsky, yes, him again, said, These are not meteors falling, but Americans testing new weapons. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for street food after Montana lawmakers passed a bill allowing residents to bring home and eat road-killed game, such as bears and bighorn sheep. Said State Representative Steve Lavin, people hit a lot of animals. There's a lot of good meat being wasted out there. And I have to admit, in his opinion of this correspondent, that people should be allowed to eat roadkill if they so desire. And we don't have a lot of indignation, frankly, over this story from Europe about horse meat being blended into hamburgers. I mean, as far as we can see, the horses were already dead when they ground them up. I mean, a lot of people, you know, thrive on horse meat. The Mongols certainly did. And how different can it be from beef? Of course, uh, I guess I do agree that the Europeans are nervous about the fact that uh, the horse meat may have come from race horses, which are, you know, filled with various adulterating uh, steroid hormones and, and drugs to make them run faster, which, which might be a legitimate concern. And, you know, everything about this program seems to be reminding me of old jokes. In this case, Rodney Dangerfield's line of like, Ooh, that was a terrific steak, except I could see Muggs, but the jockey was hitting it. And finally, it was both a good and bad week, depending upon how you look at it, for kicking the habit after a British woman announced that she was giving up cigarettes on her 102nd birthday over fears they could shorten her life. It's been estimated that Cowell... It's been estimated that Clara Cowell has smoked 60,000 cigarettes since her first one back in 1931. And although on this program we did report the good news, based on a study of over 200,000 American men and women, that it's never too late to quit. The study found that even kicking the habit before age 60 is good for as many as six more years of life. So while it is true that it is never too late to quit, I'm going to put my medical license on the line here and take the position that if you're a heavy smoker and you live to be 102, hell, go ahead and smoke. I hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Or, for that matter, the American Medical Association. Or World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control. But it's long been the reasoning of this correspondent, when someone lives to be 100 years of age, whatever they're doing is working for them. So, so please, do not send hate mail. You can send other mail, however, to us at info at radioparallax.com. We always welcome your input. Let's back up a moment and talk about that threat from space. I can pretty much promise you we're going to get somebody from the B612 uh, uh, Society on this show, uh, probably either astronaut Ed Liu or Rusty Schweiker, to talk about uh, what we must do to minimize our chances of getting smacked by something coming out of deep space. 
But we'd also refer you to the briefing section of the Week magazine, which talks about uh, this threat from space. One thing that struck me was that uh, estimates now are that the Tunguska event of 1908 caused a blast 185 times stronger than the one than the one from the nuclear bomb dropped on, dropped on Hiroshima, which, if the math is correct, would make it a five times more energetic explosion than the one that took place in Russia last week. We're pleased to note that there seems to be a chorus calling for uh, something to be done about this, and we're glad because we've been trying to sound this Paul Revere alarm on this program for some time. But um, we're not sure about how easy it's going to be to get the Russians on board, this whole idea of Vladimir Zhirinovsky uh, notwithstanding. Mr. McMillan is flabbergasted with the two biggest smacks to earth coming in the last century, both hitting Siberia. You think the Russians would be... uh, would be on board. But according to Alexander Malshev, writing in the Nezavizmaya Gazeta, and reprinted in the week, because frankly, my subscription to Nezavizmaya Gazeta ran out last year. Despite how incredibly well documented this event over uh, Chelyabinsk was, the Russians are they're just not necessarily thinking that it was a meteor. Reports Mr. Malyshev, everyone's first assumption was there was another massive nuclear accident at Malyak, which is a nearby reactor that back in 1957 was the site of the world's worst nuclear waste accident until Chernobyl. It was noted that once it became clear there was no radiation contamination, all of our hidden fears came out. Some theorized the meteor was an American space weapon, others that it was a UFO shot down by somebody's missile. More plausibly, some argue that the blast came from a Russian missile test gone awry. The one thing they seemed to agree upon in Russia was that the meteor was not a meteor. Of course, the explanation, which I think makes sense, came from a Russian political analyst, Andrei Lavrov, who said, for Russians, everything that goes through official channels is assumed to be false. It's easier to believe in little green men. Some are asking why it is, in spite of our efforts to pick up these near-Earth objects, we missed this thing that hit Siberia. Well, the answer is it was only about 55 feet across. And although uh, scientists have logged in a lot of objects that are about that size uh, among the near-Earth objects, obviously we've missed a few, which is why the B612 Foundation plans to get a space telescope up in 2018 that will pick up more of these small asteroids. Or if you prefer large meteorites. Of course, that's not exactly right. It's only a meteorite when it hits us. Anyway, they need some new, uh, they need some new nomenclature, among other things. But uh, the asteroid that just buzzed us the day after Valentine's Day was estimated to be two football fields in length. The one that hit uh, in Siberia back in 1908, generating a two and a half megaton air blast was less than a fifth that size, only 120 feet, uh, according to most recent estimates. And yeah, the one, the one that just hit Siberia was estimated to be 55 feet uh, in diameter. Obviously, the more massive the object, uh, the more trouble we're in if it hits us. Back in 1994, Jupiter was hit by comet fragments up to 1.2 miles in diameter. That caused a blast on the gas giant with a radius about twice the size of the Earth which certainly was a wake-up call. And uh, the current edition of Scientific American has a great article on the secrets of primitive meteorites, which um, scientist and author Alan Rubin studied in great, uh, great detail to try and determine where 
uh, in our solar system these objects originated. Some, some good science there. We'll try and delve into that in a future show, along with uh, Astronomy Magazine's 2006 article, which I just dug out of the pile of materials out in my garage, talking about uh, rocks from space. There's some really interesting science in recent years on, on these topics. There's also been some science we're less sure of, a few items I think I want to toss out right about now, such as the supposed mammal, which is the ancestor of all mammals, which scientists in Scotland have reconstructed, making guesses about anatomic traits and uh, factoring in some genetic information. We were taking a zoology class at this fine institution many years ago where uh, there was a great deal of scoffing over the ability of scientists to guess what earlier organisms looked like. The example I was taught back then was that uh, when they were trying to figure out how the mollusks all came about. Uh, they sort of averaged together all the mollusk traits to say, well, then the earliest mollusk must have looked like this. Later, when they actually found fossils of the earliest mollusk, guess what? It didn't look anything like that. So whether adding genetic data to this whole uh, guess, series of guesses uh, it makes this, uh, this current estimation of what our common ancestor looked like any better, I don't know. Of course, I may be misreporting the study slightly in what I just said. They apparently did have a fossil of a mammal that, uh, that came about just about the time the dinosaurs got wiped out. And that's factoring into their estimates, but I don't know. Anybody from the zoology department care to weigh in on this one? There's also a couple studies out about homing pigeons and how they can perhaps uh, use the Earth's magnetic field to find their way home. There's also a curious piece now about how um, some scientists note that homing pigeons have always had problems finding their way home in a certain area in New York, and nobody was sure why. Well, there's a scientist speculating that it's um, infrasound, low-frequency sound waves that uh, for some reason don't find their way to this part of New York, but according to Weather data dating back to 1969, when on a certain day the pigeons were able to find their way home. This guy's reconstructed the theory that um, atmospheric conditions then reflected infrasound, I guess, from the world's oceans in such a way that pigeons could hear it. I don't know. We really do need the zoo department. And uh, the astronomy department for these two final items. Apparently, scientists at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge said a couple weeks back that an Earth-like planet, that is a small rocky planet warm enough to have liquid water on its surface and potentially capable of hosting life, could be as close as 13 light years away. When I read that story, I thought, well, what, what, what star system are they referring to? Well, it turns out they didn't have any particular star in mind. They just did a statistical analysis of how many red dwarves there are out there and how likely they might be to have a planet around them and how it might be in the Goldilocks zone. And therefore, on the average, the Earth would ex be expected to have one 13 light years away. Which does kind of remind me about the old quip about statisticians who examining the data would say that if your head's in the oven and your ass is on a block of ice, on the average, you should be quite comfortable. And finally, on what first inspection appears to this correspondent, it may be... I don't know, the dumbest science headline of the year is that apparently some researchers at Penn State University who need, I think, more to occupy their time have concluded that our own planet, Earth, may in fact lie outside of the Goldilocks zone.
Now, if you stop and think about it a minute, the only place in the entire universe that we know has life on it, and I mean this is the only place we're certain has life on it, which is our very own Earth, you would think would have to in some, in some way define what must be the Goldilocks zone. But no, Ravi Kumar Koparapu has taken a look at it and concluded the habitable zone wasn't exactly where astrobiologists and, astro- and astronomers thought it was. Thankfully, though, they weren't off by much in his estimation. Anyway, according to this bright spark in our very own solar system, the habitable zone now ranges from 99% of our distance to the sun to 1.7 times our distance from the sun. I don't know, maybe this will turn out to be not as wacky as it seems. I, I hope so. We must take a break. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got lots of science and lots of other stuff coming up in our next segment. And, of course, we'll have Sean Mitten to talk sports when he gets here. 